0: Internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, revolvers. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say that will discover a of the god and reach the side ocean floor.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to the show. I have the returning champion, Charles (laughs) Haywood. He has agreed to come back and, uh, uh, finish the fight. We, we were, um, debating the fragility of the regime. And I think we, I think we made some progress in that episode. I think that was a, uh, a fruitful debate.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Oftentimes these things are not. So, also, I had uh, just come off a devastating computer crash in my my microphone. I didn't realize it. My microphone was not reinstalled, so I have that. So, I'm really glad he's allowing me to like redeem myself with the with the mic and everything. Um, so let's just get right into it. Actually, I got criticized for putting too much fluff buffer intro in the beginning. Somebody was like, "Everyone knows who Charles Haywood is. Just get started." And I was like, "You know, he's right." <laughs> I'm going to start doing that from now on.
0: <laughs> it, it, it is true that everyone should know who Charles Haywood is, but that everyone does, I think, is an overstatement.
1: <laughs> well, everyone listening did. <laughs> so listen, let's dive right in. We were talking about the fragility of the regime, and um I was happy that we kind of clarified that we were using weakness uh as a different, differently. Yes. That, that you were saying they couldn't withstand a crisis, and I was saying that the regime isn't weak because they can sort of assert control and and re-entrench themselves um but we still we still had a couple of things to work out and i think i think if we discuss some other topics that you bring up some of which you bring up right in that discussion um in in your essay on your blog So I think if we sort of uh, dive down into some of the concepts we didn't get to yet, some of the concepts that you bring up and the way you use them, I think we could probably clarify and also shed a lot of light onto the current situation we find ourselves in now, Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: you seem to be uh, doing the very important work of looking to the future, even the near future, and trying to come up with like a conceptual or ideological framework that if there were to be some sort of major sea change in American political, you know, in the regime or the political landscape, that there is already a framework in place for what to do next and how to uh, keep things going. Have yes, I characterized I- your
0: projects? The only caveat I would add is I wouldn't call anything I do ideological. Uh, ideology to me is is kind of a swear word because I adhere to the, the James Burnham definition of Ideology. Which is in essence a, a set of principles that which no outside fact can change. With and so you don't you don't want to have an ideology because ideologies are pernicious and lead to people leaving aside some of their other pernicious aspects. They, if you have an ideology, it tends to blinker you and it tends to make you less flexible because when something happens, rather than adjust your course organically, you try to force that into your pre-existing. Conclusions about the way things should be, which ultimately will always end in disaster. So, you, you know, I, I want an organic system, not an ideological system.
1: Okay. I didn't quite mean it that way, but you're right. That is, that is how that term is used. But uh, you do, you're, so what I'm talking about here is foundationalism. Is this is your program? How about that word?
0: Yes. My program. I, I call it a program.
1: And I, I agree with
0: political w- philosophy.
1: This distinction from ideology is a good one and and it's accurate. Um, however, it does seem pretty firmly rooted in traditional Christian morality.
0: There's strong elements of that, but the, the primary uh, rooting of foundationalism is simply reality. And Christian morality has a strong overlap with reality. There are Also, there's many points at which Christian morality is directly opposed to kind of the inherent tendencies of, of human nature. This is kind of an obvious Theological point. The the reason that there's that Christian morality is an explicit part of foundationalism is that one that it tends to benefit society the most in terms of having a uh, consistent moral framework, in part because one of the my core theses is that social behavior uh, needs to be and should be directed and guided by stigma and without some kind of overarching moral framework you don't have stigma because it's everybody does what everybody feels like is a good idea it doesn't have to be christianity i just think it should be christianity uh it could be something else it could be an entirely new religion i mean of course it'd be a bogus false religion from my perspective but, but in theory you could accomplish the same goal with a totally new religion
1: okay good yes i was going to get to that the 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 i guess it's reasonable to say it's not ideological because it is reality based and the fact that there's even a debate over the reality based principles in something like foundationalism is itself the 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 result of of uh, ideology I was going to say degenerate or aberrant ideology but ideology uh,
0: yeah I think, that, plain, I think and that's,
1: plain and simple you
0: know, a religion is an ideology like if you know for example, if someone showed up behind me right now and said "I'm Jesus Christ and everything you think about me is wrong." I would just assume he was a liar and that's not the real Jesus Christ because, you know, so that set of facts would would not alter my pre-existing beliefs if if someone, you know, did that. So religion is an ideology. I'm not saying that all ideologies are inherently uh, completely worthless or pernicious, but political ideologies tend to be or are are necessarily.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to get bogged down in semantics, but the way (laughs) you lay out foundationalism is such that it does seem like a dynamic sort of Dare I say fluid system s- pro- or program, I guess. It's
0: not gender fluid.
1: Yeah, I know. I hate words <laughs> like that. Words like that have become like, uh, radioactive now.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, but, but for example, and I guess this is a good place to start. I was going to start somewhere else with this discussion, but, um, it's good that someone in a position such as yours is like coming up with and asserting a program. Uh, because we do need, so one of the arguments people have about the right, one of the arguments, one of the ways the right self criticizes is to say that everybody's really good at, at critiquing the situation, but nobody's like coming up with a solution or nobody's, uh, offering tools to use to build something new. And one of the reasons I like to focus on you and your work is because you are one of the only people doing this in a comprehensive way. And it's very measured, Uh, and it's, and it's firmly based not just in reality, but tradition and history. And, um, this foundationalism is certainly very American. It's not foreign. Some people come in and say we need like a traditional hereditary monarchy. And it's like, well, that's like, that like flies in the face of like the whole entire way our, our country was constructed.
0: Why don't we do this?
1: Yeah, you're right. Yes, I wasn't planning on asking you to lay out the tenets of foundationalism at the get go, but actually, why don't we just do that first if if you feel prepared for it? Well, I mean,
0: I, I, yeah,
1: I, we don't have I, to get too I, in depth here. We're going to yeah, use it I, as a a, a springboard.
0: List them off, basically. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, you know, a foundationalist manifesto on uh, on my my site, you know, the Worthy House. So the and it goes through basically the what I regard as the twelve pillars of foundationalism as well as introducing what foundationalism is. And then what I do is, so, so the manifesto isn't, you know, 50,000 words long. I refer to within that manifesto and link to other writings I've done on each of these individual topics, which kind of flesh it out. So you could write a whole book on it. I don't necessarily intend to write a whole book, though I, I threaten to do it. But to the extent someone is interested, for example, in one of the pillars, you can get learn more of my thinking not just from the summary within the manifesto but from other pieces I've written over the past couple of years so I'll just I'll just go through it real quickly if you want me to
1: yeah so yeah, I'll, let's I'll, let's lay it out and then um, we'll get we'll get to the the rest
0: right so i mean the, the, the basic point is that is that foundationalism is the politics of future past it is not a nostalgia or a return. And I think that is a crucial point. And I make this in, in various places, but I make this point in various places. Turning the clock back um, may or may not be a good idea, but it re- that's irrelevant because it's an impossible idea. Because the past, as you know, uh, L.P. Hartley said, the past is a foreign country. They th- do things differently there. So we have to look forward and create a new thing, of course, after having completely destroyed the left and our you know, our existing political structures. So not nostalgia, but the politics of the future informed by the wisdom of the past. And in part for that reason, the the of the twelve pillars, the first pillar, and they're not necessarily done in order of importance. But the first pillar, which I've written on a couple times, and in fact I'm writing a an additional piece on now, is space or the conquest of space which I regard as very important both as a binding goal for mankind and as a uh the new frontier to use a, a cliche that is is it's gonna be very difficult to have a successful future society that's not simply static unless we move forward into space exploration, which is may or may not be manned and obviously depends on a variety of things. And in fact, any kind of technologically advanced future society is going to require finding new energy sources, not because fossil fuels are bad or global warming is a real problem, but because the amount of energy required to do these things is significant. Uh, we'll come back to technology in in you know a little bit. So uh, the second pillar is uh, a mixed government of limited ends and unlimited means. That is, I want the government to be vastly stripped down and to the federal government in particular, depending upon how things are organized, but assuming some some federal type system, I want the federal government to have uh, very limited ends, but within those, the achievement of those ends, unlimited means. It, 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 you can look at this various ways, but for example, national defense, the, the government's limited end should be the defense of the borders. Like well, we what happens in the Far East is should be no concern whatsoever of ours. We should have nothing. We just don't care. Um and maybe we sell a few weapons here and there, but even that we probably shouldn't do. Uh but we should have within the ability to defend the national borders, we should have unlimited means. So for example, in this context, we should just slaughter Mexican drug dealers. Um, you know, because they're they and and everybody up and down that that chain, uh ignoring Mexican sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh none of this like you know, pussyfooting around kind of stuff. So very Five percent. The government should be something like five percent the size it is now, but within that structure, it should have uh, it should have unlimited means. The uh, third pillar is virtue politics. That is, uh, I completely reject the idea that the government should be neutral or society should be neutral as to how people behave. Society, and I touched on this earlier, should stigmatize people who behave uh, in a non-virtuous manner. The ruling class should be expected to have extremely high standards of virtue. Um, and those should be set uh, at, at a societal level more than a governmental level. I don't think, back to the unlimited means point, I don't think the government can dictate virtue. Virtue has to, government can legislate virtue within a society and morality within a society that already has a large degree of that. And a government should absolutely uh, legislate uh, morality and virtue, but you can't just do it from the top down if the society itself uh, isn't virtue. Uh, the fourth pillar, one that I think probably is the most, practical in many ways, is sex role realism. Uh, We should basically have a completely divergent roles for men and women. In short, men should have the outward facing role in society and women should have the uh, inward Family-facing role in society, so to take a practical example, um, women should generally not have careers, um, and they should not be uh, accepted for careers uh, as independent thing, except in, in rare instances. And men, men with families should be overtly preferred uh, for all kinds of employment, and women should be stigmatized if they work outside the home in a career fashion. Uh, fifth pillar, the subordination of economics to politics. No libertarianism, no economic exaltation. Uh, I don't care if it's more efficient to have one big company, no company. For example, I've talked about this a lot. You should not have any kind of market concentration. You should have an extremely aggressive antitrust program. Uh, There's many other kind of things along that lines too. Six pillar, intermediary institutions. That is, people have made this point before. First, Robert Nisbet in the 1940s. A strong society has a web of intermediary institutions, unions, churches, bowling alleys, bowling leagues, like Robert Putnam wrote this book, Bowling Alone, on this topic. A society that has the government as its intermediary, uh, uh, it, it, the way people interact with other people is through the government is a terrible society. The go- Most interactions in society should be done through institutions of various kinds, which, is, as we all know, in America have, have largely disappeared. Seventh pillar: subsidiarity. In other words, all for and this is uh, commonplace, but especially in Catholic thought, a all forms of of governmental and governmental type action should be done at the most local level possible. So when I say government of unlimited ends, and unlimited means, uh, the federal government should have nothing to say about the vast majority of things it, it has to say now. It Should have nothing to say about. Uh, schooling, it you have nothing to say about guns, it you have nothing to say about anything practically that can be handled on the local level. Uh, eighth pillar, hierarchy and order. This is, I mean, I hate to bring him up because it's kind of gone off the rails, but you know, Jordan Peterson is always talking about hierarchy. A, a sound society recognizes that hierarchy is both natural and necessary. And along this goes things like um, punishments for crimes. And there should be no regulatory crimes whatsoever, uh, no what are co- the only kinds of crimes should be what they used to call malum and say that is crimes that are recognized as wrong of themselves like murder and theft and all other crimes are not crimes at all and should be re- dealt with uh, there should be very few violations and vastly few regulations but to the extent you have violated some relevant regulation it shouldn't be a crime at all it should be a, fine, a finable civil offense and as far as crimes go you should basically sharply limit jail you should have capital punishment and on the one hand and corporal punishment combined with perhaps restitution and fines on the other hand uh, and capital punishment should be vastly more aggressively administered um you know I occasionally get the response that 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 modern Christianity doesn't approve of capital punishment I mean, and I reject of course outright Pope Francis's various heretical uh innovations in in Catholic doctrine, including that one, but it's also true that my own denomination or sect or whatever you want to call it, Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, somewhat frowns in the modern world upon upon capital punishment. Uh, I think that is an incorrect application of an obvious Christian principle, which is that capital punishment uh, is just fine. Um, Ninth pillar, Christian religion. We talked a little bit about that uh, already. Tenth pillar, high culture. That is you can't have a society that is radically successful unless you have uh, a high culture that is encouraged and funded by the elite and the upper classes. Uh, it's necessary, we, we, of course, have the exact opposite. We have a trash culture where even the upper classes adopt what the, the trash, the lower culture, lower classes, uh, you know, spew up. And we also have... The upper class is generating the the worst kind of degenerate crap so uh, the uh, exact opposite of what's happening now eleventh pillar kind of back to the beginning techno optimism I am though lately I've been feeling a little bit uh, in insecure or unsure about this a techno optimist I think that technology can and should be used to benefit man and can and should be controlled uh um, my skepticism is, or not skepticism, but my caution lately is I'm beginning to wonder if that can be controlled, but it can, can be controlled by taboo and stigma. Uh, so to the extent we have techno optimism, uh, we need those things, but right now we have no technology. Well, my theory is that we've reached technical, technological apogee and are falling backwards. And that's, uh, for a variety of reasons, but it's primarily because our society exalts and rewards the inferior and, uh, people who do not deserve any rewards and will not reward the people who actually create new technology in any meaningful way, combined with, of course, that the financial incentives are all to create technology that is net social negative rather than social positive. And the 12th pillar, nationalism, not globalism, which is kind of self-explanatory. Globalism is stupid and should be ended. And that's that. So there you go. That's the 12 pillars.
1: Well done. That was a really good synopsis. Uh, anyone who's gotten to this point in this uh, series of discussions between us who hasn't read your foundationalist manifesto needs to go do so. Um You've done a good job synopsizing it, but I will say some of those, especially the one about gender, you elaborate and get much more in-depth and specific in the essay. Yes. Now, I agree almost completely with everything you've said. Um I have a couple caveats that I don't really want to get into because it will take us off the the topic today. But I agree enough that I'm willing to, like if I was in a position to be asked, okay, what are we going to do for the future? What are we going to do going forward? I'd say here, read this (laughs) foundationless manifesto. This is the plan. This is what we're going to do. But here's where, here's the interesting part. Here's the discussion. All right. How do we get from here to there? Now, everything you just red right off flies directly in the face of what the current regime and what progressivism in general because it's not just the regime but it's also the people who support and are supported by the regime so there's a, a, a tons of popular support for the regime and then there's a bunch of apathy out there for people who are like uh for all intents and purposes uh, supporting the regime kind of through their passivity so the amount of pushback you would have, uh, if you were to put this on the marketplace of ideas is substantial. And there's just no way the regime would adopt any of this. It, it flies in the face of everything they're doing. I do think it needs to be disseminated amongst the right. Uh, and people need to, to look at it, consider it and take it up more. Um, because I, I mean, I don't really want to get into this either, but I'll just ask you, um, the right doesn't really have a lot of cohesion and, and the right is definitely a bunch of different factions kind of fighting over what they think is ideal. Um, this is one of the only things I've seen that most people could probably get on board because you do have a really good synthesis of traditional things that pretty much everyone on the right agrees with, which is traditional gender roles, traditional morality, like the death, the death penalty, capital punishment. I agree with you on that one. With this forward looking, futuristic, pro tech, pro space agenda. Um, but leaving everything I just said aside, because it will get us off into the weeds. I want to focus <laughs> on two things that you talk about that I think are the only real way to give, to give foundationalism any viability or any life in the future. And that is, uh, well, the, the main thing, the second thing is really a subcategory is Caesarism
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the Caesar figure. The subcategory I was going to name was the, the counter elite, but the counter elite actually is just one of the things that will kind of bolster Caesar. So it's really mm-hmm. a subcategory. So, um, let's get into Caesarism proper because, uh, there's a really good discourse going on amongst the right. And you talk about this in your essay on the future ascent of a Caesar. Mm-hmm. The discourse on the right around Caesar is, is very, very good. High level. Everyone needs to be in on this conversation. Uh, the Michael Anton and Curtis Yarvin debate, Curtis Yarvin's program in general, basically mm-hmm. uh, the things you say, uh, the debate you had with, uh, well, it wasn't really a debate. It was a discussion with, with five other guys with Michael Anton, Dave Reboy, Daryl Cooper. Um, am I missing anybody who's up in this discussion? Uh in McIntyre. Yeah,
0: Ma- or in McIntyre is yeah. you know, talking with him about that. I mean, it, it's those are the, the obvious, obvious players. Um, I think it, this actually, even before I started writing about it, though it's been kind of a subtopic of mine for a while, I think the initial uh, impetus for this was a discussion Yarvin had with Jack Murphy before Jack Murphy kind of went off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> less said about that, the better perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... uh but um i mean i i i think yeah, as we discussed i mean i'm a mixed mind about a lot of jervin stuff but he, to his credit he he was he's he's been talking about this kind of stuff for a while the solutions are all you know completely insane um but in in general as a, as a as a question of uh movement in political process this question of roughly speaking of caesarism i think is crucial
1: okay good so i want to make it clear that this is part of that Whole discussion and that whole series of discussions. So I will link actual resources in the show notes uh, for those listening who aren't privy to all those past discussions that have been happening. So I, I want to actually introduce it by the topic by reading the first paragraph of your On the Future Ascent of a Caesar because this discussion, uh, Runs the risk of being itself like a, a fantasy role playing, uh, a couple of nerds. You know, I could, <laughs> I, I could equate it to, um, well, we might as well talk about, you know, um, you know, the, the federation of Star Trek being, being implemented because how realistic is this really? Is it just?
0: Star Trek, of course, has no historical precedent. At least Caesar does have historical precedent. Well,
1: exactly. Is this conversation couched in reality and things that could, that are historical, uh, excuse me, future possibilities? Or is this just a way of right wingers coping from their uh, uh, lost position? So let me read this chapter, paragraph, and I'll let you uh, pick it up from there. Yep. So the introductory paragraph is, I recently wrote about what might happen after an American Caesar, a radical reconstructor of our polity, arose. And in these days of American humiliation and accelerating decay, a Caesar is viewed by many, if in quiet tones, as a kind of solution. But is Caesar, Michael Anton's Red Caesar, merely a coping mechanism for the right, a fantasy meant to replace the dead hope of a restored American founding? Is Caesar an encouragement to eschatological passivity, or an equivalent in the... Now this I'm not familiar with what this is our equivalent of the Twelver Shia hidden Imam, who when everything is at its worst will arrive to set the world aright without any action needed by us. No, and today I will tell you why. Now <laughs> these rhetorical questions you pose are the questions I'm constantly grappling with in my mind as I deploy my past year of talking and writing about the Caesar. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to quiet my mind first. And and convince me and the listener why this is truly a viable uh, uh, discussion.
0: Yeah, I, I go through the couple of different possibilities and, and analyses, and we can focus on, on whatever you want. But I mean, Caesarism is, and, and, and I kind of give a rough thumbnail definition of that and what you just read, Caesarism is inherently the solution to all decaying polities uh I, the other solution of course there's other solutions to be sure you know complete disappearance of a civilization external uh external conquering of a civilization but none of those things seem likely it, uh, on our horizon so to the extent that our society has a very significant political change it will almost certainly uh, just thinking logically be through the vehicle of an individual who who was willing to take the risk in order to achieve his own uh, internal uh, benefits, and by that I don't mean monetary benefits, but rather certain men are driven by the psychological need to behave in this way. So, at some point, <coughs> someone—excuse me—someone <coughs> will come along and attempt to seize the reins of power, because that's inherent in the nature of, of certain men. And th- at some point, that sort of thing will likely be successful, or it'll end up in some kind of grinding civil war as a couple of these kind of peoples emerge. What won't happen, and I've written on this extensively elsewhere, is that the current regime will not continue because it's fragile, because the technological panopticon that people think will somehow magically maintain the regime doesn't exist and will never exist. Necessarily, Caesar, some variation on that, will arise to reconstruct the the institutions. And that just kind kind of... There's really no way around that, because if you agree that our society is fragile and heading for the trash heap, the only thing logically that can happen in order to replace that is this kind of thing. Well, our
1: society is heading for the trash heap, that much is clear. I don't know if – I still disagree with you that the regime is fragile enough that the regime itself will collapse um and we talked in the past episode that you can have a stable regime on top of a collapsed society but that's for the, that's for the other episode um for today i i want to i want to lay out my sort of potential visions three different potential visions of where we could go and mm-hmm. i've modeled them on uh some historical circumstances that i don't think will track you know point for point But they can serve as a broad outline of where we can go.
0: I think that's a good point that all these things are broad outlines. Yes. The specifics, I mean, I talk about this in my what to do when Caesar comes piece. If you're someone on the right, I don't think there's ever going to be a Michael Anton's blue Caesar or a left wing Caesar. But a Red Caesar is unlikely to, to sit down with his foundationalist manifesto and implement all 12 points and say, there you go, Heywood, you know, you're know, you welcome. I mean, a Red Caesar is likely to do all sorts of unpleasant things and to, and to not necessarily implement a system that people on the right like. Uh, it might be better than the current system and still be very bad. So uh, broad outlines is really all we can do.
1: Yes, that's excellent. I agree with that. And I think what to do when Caesar comes is – have this framework ready i agree with you to an extent that it will probably not be taken up and implemented uh to our heart's content but um the caesar will need a counter-elite to Mm -hmm. sort of help base his regime on now i don't consider myself to be potential part of this counter-elite but people that i pay attention to certainly will be um well, we'll get back to that. Let's let's and, loop uh, back and, uh, back to
0: counter but we can save those for. Oh yeah, um, we
1: need to we need to talk about the counter relief but let's loop back around to it. Um, because I want to lay this out because I want to hear your um response. Basically, the first is is the Julius Caesar route. Now here's the here's the talking point that may be a point of contention between us about the Julius Caesar route. The first is the Julius Caesar route, and the Julius Caesar route I do not see as one of collapse or regime collapse. The Roman Republic didn't exactly collapse; rather, uh, certain men, as the years went by, and as the regime like picked up momentum and gained steam, and like won war after war, and won the the war against the the Carthaginians and things like that. Ended up concentrating wealth and power for various reasons in a few men's hands and they became so powerful that they had the, the, the might to fight each other over the control of the state. And then the winner emerged after a century or more of, of all out warfare, a, a, a civil war and external war, yep. um, to end in Augustus Caesar. To me, that isn't. That has nothing to do with like regime collapse. Now, the regime was decaying and, and having major problems. But I think, and I, I think I'm ready to defend this position. I think that if the Caesars never showed up and never arose or, or decided not to take power in the way that they did, especially with Augustus, I'm not convinced that the regime would have like disintegrated or collapsed or, or buckled under their own, uh, in, uh, inefficiencies. I maybe like to think bad. that they probably could have kept going like they were, probably until I don't know what would have happened. Maybe with, with Greece, somebody from the outside would have came and taken them over, or a different faction would have taken over.
0: Well, maybe, but the the thing to remember about the switch from the Republic to the Empire, you know, Caesar through Augustus with the intermittent wars with uh, Mark Antony, is that when the dust settled after Caesarism, the institutions of Rome had much the same names, but zero, almost zero of the same content. So uh, if the classic example of the Roman Senate switched from being a body that actually had some power to being a sop to people who were, who were uh, in the upper classes and would you know, work for Caesar and so on. It, it, the same thing is true for a lot of the other institutions in the entire what they call the cursus honorum, the set of uh, offices that in the Republic people climbed True. And the, so the regime had collapsed. Uh, and I, I typically don't use the term collapse. I use the term fracture. That is, if, if you're a Martian, you're like, well, you know, in 80 BC, they had a Senate and 80 AD, they had a Senate. So, you know, those things are the same, but they're not the same thing at all. They're, they're basically completely unrecognizable to each other. And that had happened before. I mean, long before Caesar, not long before, but a couple of decades before Caesar. One classic example is the tribune of of the plebs there's the tribune of the people which was an office that held in essence an absolute veto over consular action Uh, and the person of the uh tribune there are a couple different kinds of tribunes but and they sometimes get confused i think there's some debate in the historical record but the person of the tribune was sacrosanct and the the veto was absolute Uh, and then one day they started killing the tribunes and ignoring his vetoes So at that point, you have, at least in that narrow area, but that was a very important function. You have a regime fracture already. You still have a tribune, but the tribune is not, this does not have the same authority or power that he used to have. His position is completely different. So while this, this process was probably slower motion in a, in a largely agricultural and non technological society, you already had a fracture. Caesar merely put the final spike in this, and then reconstructed. And Augustus reconstructed Caesar would have reconstructed it probably in a different way, but you know Caesar didn't make it. <laughs> so, right. so uh, but but I think that that is not in fact true that these the regime uh, had not fractured, but in fact had already fractured, and Caesar was, was merely the denouement of that.
1: Well, certainly, yeah, and it was certainly decaying uh, quite significantly. There's the problem of land reform, and I think these yeah. that Caesar. Well, the Gracchi started, um, so this was a, a centuries long problem. Pompey addressed the, uh, the, uh, Mediterranean pirates. These were problems that the state was incapable of dealing with, not because they were inefficient though, because that they didn't want to, they didn't want to reform. Uh, they, you know, so I do think it would have eventually caused some sort of problem, but that problem, may have simply resulted in the in the senate and the state reasserting itself and and reentrenching power um you don't know for sure like what would have happened so yes there was a breakdown and there was decay but without the rise of the caesars now the rise of the caesars of course you could argue was inevitable it looks like that's just as as states get richer um and civilizations get richer, and uh, trade increases, and you get this new class. Not that Caesar was part of the new class of, of rich people, but, um, well, let's let's say instead of saying a new class, you get a a class of people who are sort of equals, sort of starting to rise above because they make so much money. Um,
0: well, Caesar was in a sense was a new class. I mean, in the Gracchi example of this too. You you start to see the emergence of optimates, you know, that is upper class people whose main power base is the lower classes. Uh, or the lower slash middle classes, that's somewhat of an academic uh, term. Yeah,
1: well, let's, let's couch that because I do want to talk about that because we, we have to talk about Caesar, um, getting the favor and the support of the masses and the public. But, uh, that's, that's uh, I, not unique to Rome, though.
0: No, I agree. I think it's, but you're I, right. I,
1: yeah. Sorry. I, I,
0: one, one side point. The, um, the, uh, uh, hang on now. I forgot my, uh, my, uh, my side point. Um, oh yeah, the, the, To the point of whether the republic could have kind of staggered on. I I think there is some chance of that, to be fair. But that's largely because the republic as an entity was not completely fake and gay. That is. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. (laughs) I mean, back then you know if you didn't provide value you didn't eat and you starve to death right now we have legions of parasites based right. on our fake economy and we you know, we have you know trannies we have things that that like the 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 most decadent and crazy person in at the time of julius caesar would have been completely unable to comprehend you know the society and would assume that it was just you know, you know A fever nightmare. So uh, there was, uh, you know, the old Adam Smith line, there's a lot of ruin in a nation, applies, I think, more to countries that are still reality based. I mean, in in Rome, you know, you had to provide value, you had to get food, you had to feed people, you couldn't create money and so on and so forth. Uh, So I think there is more likelihood of Rome staggering on than of us staggering on.
1: That's an excellent counterpoint. And I agree with that completely that, that maybe I am correct about the situation in Rome, but it's not necessarily applicable to our situation now. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Let me move on to the next, the last two. And I know the third one you're going to disagree with vehemently. So I'm going to save that one for last. The other scenario I see us potentially, uh, careening towards, I think it's less likely. I think the Rome is more likely than this one, which is the French revolution, (laughs) which is that there really is a regime Collapsed. The regime is hollowed out to the point where, uh, it's, it's basically, I don't want to say non-existent, but it's completely deadlocked. And, um, there are major, major, major problems brewing under the surface that finally erupt in the French revolution that, uh, did I say that right? Revolution. Yeah. Sorry. I'll edit this. <laughs> that finally. <laughs> That finally erupted in the French Revolution, which tore the ancient regime down, inserted something completely new, and you had the rise of Napoleon, who's often cited as one of the main people that people cite as a Caesar. Now, this scenario is one in which you do have something like this group of people, counter elite, if you will. I know some people will argue and say those people weren't elites, but you get my point. People who were there, ready to take over, ready to implement power, to to exert power and implement their they regi- their, you know, version of the state. Yeah. And they had all these tools ready to go. And these are basically enlightenment, you know, values. Let's make it simple. Um, this, this is less likely in my opinion. There's talk of civil war. I, I just, dis- I dismiss most of that talk. You bring it up sometimes. You bring it up in the Caesar essay. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I guess it's viable enough to discuss when you look at things like the Floyd riots and who knows a lot of people are worried something's going to happen in 2024 um you had the uh the totally legal and and legitimate protest on January 16th uh, January 6th which they're calling an attempted coup, and you have a phrase for it that I prefer. Electoral I
0: prefer. justice protest.
1: Yeah, thank you, an electoral yeah. justice protest.
0: Well, you no, know, that's good.
1: If someone wanted to get fancy, they could point to these things as the stirrings of something that may lead up. And and of course, the, our regime has uh, quite a lot of the problems that the, the ancient regime had, which was the, the selling off of government offices, the – Crippling debt that they had to keep defaulting on, things like that. Yep.
0: Um, well, I think the I think it's an it's an excellent analysis. I think that the French Revolution is a is both applicable and inapplicable. It's inapplicable in the sense that what drove it was ideology, and it was Enlightenment ideology in the freshness of its youth before it became completely clownish and discredited. Not that its adherents today will admit that, but you, you, as with communism in its uh, early youth, Enlightenment ideology seemed to have plausibility, particularly as against a, as you say, a hollowed out uh, set of existing regimes. But we don't have a counter-ideology in that sense. The only historical example of a right-wing counter-ideology, of course, would be national socialism, which you know I'm not recommending. and It's not part of foundationalism, but you could imagine uh, a, a if things got really bad in America- as they had in Germany in the 1920s and in 1930s, especially if we lost a war or something, you can imagine a, some radical right-wing ideology coming up and you know overthrowing the state in a way similar to the French Revolution. I, I agree. I don't think that's likely. I, 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 On the other hand, I think it's applicable in the sense that I think civil war is a, a real possibility. I think civil war would likely lead into Caesarism. So we're kind of back to, back to our, our first point then. I, I, I think civil war... I go back and forth how likely civil war is. Certainly, we're not going to have civil war until there's big changes and until enough people feel that they can change their situation, improve their desperate situation through some kind of political violence. I mean, that that was what started off the Roman civil wars, along with, of course, the great man, uh, great men who who engage in those things. It's not exactly applicable because all of those were started by military men. And one criticism of, of the analysis of Caesarism is that, well, Caesar is always a military man. And Yeah, America, I disagree
1: with that criticism.
0: Well, I do too. But I mean, you see that. So it's not clear exactly how a civil war would start uh, in America. I think that you know, uh, my actual uh, weirdly most plausible scenario for civil war is one I haven't talked a lot about. But do you know who John Michael Greer is?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've heard him on podcasts before. I've never read his work though.
0: He has a he has a book, uh, Retrotopia, which is kind of a fiction work about uh, post uh, Civil War America, and I have a review of it. It's interesting, but he doesn't go into the Civil War much. But he actually he he, he has the Civil War beginning, and this was before the, the Wuhan plague and the, the vaccine and so on, beginning when some uh, company. Uh, puts out a, a basically a gene spliced drug of some kind that turns out to kill children in the womb. And then they try to cover it up. And then a riot starts at some point where people literally uh, tear the CEO of the company limb from limb and they just start having a war. So you can imagine something where people are just they're just so fed up, you know, all these children are dead and so on and the, and the elites don't care and so on you get these these triggers. I mean, the Bastille is overrated as a French Revolution trigger, but it is true that there are triggers to things. And if January 6th had been a different thing, you could imagine that kind of thing being a trigger, trigger as well. So I think civil war is more likely than people think simply because the triggers for these things aren't visible until they're visible in hindsight.
1: Okay, I mostly disagree with this. Um, there are some exceptions. So uh, I... Uh, See, part of our disagreement about the regime and, and where I differ with a lot of people on the right, and I've noticed that a lot of the people who agree with me are like my age and a lot of the people I disagree with are much younger than me, mm-hmm. um, is that everyone says that the regime is stupid. And um, certainly there are stupid people working for the government without question. And they do a lot of stupid things or things that are that are bad for us, the people. But in fact, there are certain mistakes that I don't anticipate them ever making. Um, So now in in terms of the John Michael Greer scenario, that's a nice science fiction scenario. But I think reality proves that this is not how things work and this is not how people react. Because A, people willingly kill their children all the time through through abortion. Uh, Men get women pregnant and the woman kills the baby and the men don't care or they're relieved. Um, even, and I'm talking also about apolitical guys. Mm-hmm. All right. So, A, that happens all the time. But if that's not enough, you have the fentanyl crisis, which is something I want to talk to you about. Your fentanyl ink essay was actually, I had known who you were, but that was the essay I read that was like, okay, this guy has something unique and different. And he, and he really tells it like it is. And I need to, that's when I started to really start reading your work with uh, regularity and gusto.
0: <laughs> gusto. And I, Excellent.
1: That's in fact when, when I uh, invited you on the show and you, you agreed. Um, so, 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 uh, red blooded heartland Americans are watching their children die with alarming regularity. And there is, has not been a, a, a revolution, but the Caesar, I I tried to, I try to like lay all this out point for point, but it's hard not to like mix everything up. As we're talking. So another thing I want to talk about, about the Caesar is the support of the masses. So while we didn't get uh, and I, I I kicked myself because I didn't get this in 2015, I didn't get that this is what Trump was doing, but I saw it, it retroactively. And that's when I became a Trump supporter. So the masses aren't going to watch their children die of fentanyl overdoses and go pick up their constitutionally uh, 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 sanctioned weapons and, and attack the state or attack uh, Purdue. Which, of course, I don't think they should do that. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> endur- not endorsing that. But what they will do is rally behind a demagogue or a Machiavellian prince-like figure like Trump who is uh giving them a voice and saying we're not going to put up with this shit anymore. Excuse my language, but I get very passionate about this. Uh We're not going to put up with this shit anymore. We're going to send these child-killing, drug-dealing scum back to where they came from. Uh, we're going to close the borders and we're not going to let any of these people in. And then we're going to take all our jobs that we sent to these people who clearly are not grateful for it. They're clearly using it as a way to undermine our society that we sent our manufacturing there. We're going to take it back and put it here. That is what the people will do. At least that's historically proven what they'll do. Yes. Now, the reason why I made the point that the regime is not stupid is because they've made, they've ensured two things. The first thing they've ensured is that those, people aren't starving. Because when you have a hungry belly, you are much less forgiving and much less patient, and you're much less likely to look to the future and and have some sort of hope that you're going to get through these trying times. They've already covered that base. The other thing is, is that while they are going pretty hard on Trump, they are not pulling out all the stops and they're not doing the one thing that I know that they know will backfire on them, which is publicly arrest him, throw him in prison, put him in a dank, dirty jail cell, and even like publicly execute him, which is what they want to do. We know that that's what they want to do, but they're not stupid enough to do that. And I think the reason why everything looks so inefficient, with and I kind of said this last time, the reason why it looks like they're so inefficiently going after him and they're so incompetent is because constantly harrying him like this, has the the uh, it sort of has this uh, erosive effect on his um, ability to sort of assert himself and kind of keep his wits about him and focus on
0: twenty twenty four. I'll actually disagree with that. Uh, since we last talked, the I think uh, it was before he announced that he was going to, or right after he announced he's he was actually going to going to campaign officially for for 2024, I actually read the facts differently. That is, I think that, uh, well, I I think the regime is more stupid than than, than you do, probably. But leaving that aside, and we talked a little bit about in the context of fragility, I think that the intention was indeed to throw Trump in prison. Uh, But I think that the people who are running this, who I agree are not completely stupid, because it's a relatively small handful of people who can run this kind of thing. But the regime in general has decided that Trump is a net negative for the right. Uh, that is, he doesn't have any chance whatsoever, and he proved that last time of being the kind of figure that can that can actually use and use power to achieve the goals for the uh, that are desired by the people who support him. So now they don't want to throw him in prison because the, he sucks the energy out of the right and prevents someone else who might be a more effective leader from uh, from arising because he has for reasons which are opaque to me this extreme loyalty from a bunch of people, even though he repeatedly stabs them in the back uh, And he if, uh, Trump was always a very imperfect figure. But I was willing to put up with him simply because he, he 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 served as a channel for these energies that you were talking about and something good might come out of that. Now he's just too old to uh to everything is bad about trump now. uh he's low, he's becoming low energy. <laughs> like Jeb. And so i mean trump needs to go away and allow, and clear the room for the next person who will inevitably arise particularly to go to your first point when people are hungry. The, you, this because my I, I posit and i think a lot of the actions that that musk has taken with respect to twitter have definitively proven this the vast majority of white-collar jobs in the country are fake and gay. And the uh, vast majority of the economy is fake. So eventually, this will all break. And probably sooner rather than later, though, it's hard to say. And at that point, people really will be hungry. So that's a real problem for the regime. Well,
1: uh, I don't agree. Because uh, one of the things Caesar did was ensure the grain supply from Egypt went straight to Rome and everybody got free bread he didn't do that because he's a benevolent father of the people he did it so that they wouldn't be hungry and uh uh th- so that they w- well he like bought them off effectively yeah. and i know i know that like cicero opposed this for very good reasons that he opposed it for the same reasons that we oppose welfare welfare is the regime doing exactly what caesar did ensuring that the people won't starve and therefore overthrow them Yes. Now we do still have the, the 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 circumstances of like the very people who were recipients of the welfare rioting anyway, but that's kind of a different story actually, and they're not actually trying to overthrow yeah, they the did regime.
0: Not have that problem. What's that? Caesar did not have that that set of problems.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's a different discussion. Um, so,
0: well, right, my well, my point is that Caesar could do that. Because he had the military force and the money, more importantly, to to bring in and Pompey, as you mentioned earlier, had destroyed the pirates, so he could bring in mass quantities of grain from Egypt and so on. I'm positing that the regime is unable to continue uh, the same kind of welfare indefinitely. Because- yeah, I don't, is fake.
1: I don't see any evidence for that except for the fact that they are terrible at balancing the books. The debt is the debt is ballooning, and that uh, they have to constantly like. Uh, well, first of all, they have to constantly cast about to find people to buy our debt, which nobody wants to do anymore. So sure. is that your argument or is it the infrastructure argument that we're simply not going to be able to keep the supply lines going?
0: Well, the two things are linked. That is, the you ha- infrastructure is real. You have to pay – in order to achieve infrastructure, you have to pay with something that represents actual value. And right now, we pay with, with borrowed or printed money which is possible for a variety of reasons, a collective delusion being one of them, and and collective delusion is extremely important for monetary policy. For I'll, I'll give an example here in a second, um, or, or and because the the dollar is the world's reserve currency and, and so forth, but collective delusion is actually more important. The the Germans, for example, as everybody knows, had a massive hyperinflation in 1923 and into early 1924, and they they. Solve that by creating a new currency, and everyone agreed to pretend it had value, and and to take the take their losses. It wasn't, yeah, on the surface it was backed by mortgages or something, but it was all fake. Everybody knew it was fake. This is just a collective agreement to agree that something exists when it does not. That's basically what we've done now, except on a vastly greater scale. Eventually, if that spell breaks, then stuff collapses. More or less overnight in the sense that the only things that will matter is actual value, whether that's natural resources of some kind, actual labor. So a person who is a history professor may still have actual value because people are actually interested in learning history. A gender studies professor ultimately has no value whatsoever except for the fact that at, at the end of the day, the government takes money at the point of a gun so that from you and me, so that that gender studies person can get 150 grand a year and, and live large, even though that person is net social negative. And you know, she- I, these gender,
1: these guys, <laughs> these these people aren't even going to be good for like digging trenches and latrines. Uh, well, <laughs> for a couple of weeks. But I'm going to be able to no. do that.
0: Right. I mean, they can do it for a couple of weeks and then they'll collapse. And then, you know, maybe I uh, maybe I. I I mean, I don't think we should starve people to death simply because they can't provide any value, but maybe some some role can be can be found for them. I, I don't know. But but I mean, my point is that I mean, I, we're both predicting the future, which, of course, is a fool's a fool's game. But it, 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 you know, it's it was like, uh, as Ben Stein said, if something can't go on forever, it won't. Yeah. I, I'm just more you know, pessimistic or rather optimistic that it's not going to go on for much longer.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, I'm I'm kind of seeing a clarity of vision here that the disagreement, I think, between me and you actually is simply how soon or far away this is, because yeah. everything you're describing is going to happen. Yeah, because- I just think they're going to be able to hold it off for longer than it looks like.
0: Well, I don't want um, to repeat your last conversation, but this is a question of fragility, and you, yeah, by definition- yeah they're only going to change when there's some external shock and external shocks are are very difficult to predict. I mean, it doesn't have to be something political. It, it could be like a real pandemic. If you get a real pandemic that kills like 10% of healthy people or children, I mean, the, the entire United States is going to grind to a halt overnight because people just simply, I mean, do you think the truck drivers are going to keep driving when there's a 10% chance that their children yeah. are going to die? No way. I mean, just, and that'll just be the end for the regime. So that could easily happen. Anything like that. Well, let me just
1: throw out my last possible scenario here. And I, and then I got to take a quick break. I have to tend to something. Is that okay if we take a, a few minutes and come back for a part two? Um, because I think after this, this will be a good place to cut it off because it will like uh, make a natural break in the conversation because we're like really synopsizing and kind of laying out the, the scenario for everybody. And that is uh, the Byzantine, the Byzantine route. And actually I – got this perspective from that uh, Edward article. He wrote an article, I think, in, or maybe it was an excerpt from the Grand Byzantine Strategy. Yeah,
0: which I have, but I've not read.
1: Well, it's it's great that his name comes up from time to time. I mean, you've mentioned him. He, You mentioned him in your Caesar article. Yeah. Um, I think that book came out in 2009, but there was an article in Foreign Affairs that I read, or I think it was Foreign Affairs. It was in some conservative journal. Mm-hmm. And his argument is basically that we are in the situation that the Byzantines found themselves in sometime after Julian, excuse me, Justinian.
0: Yeah.
1: And we need to start acting like they acted, which to make a long story short is we need to, we need to understand that we are, we sort of need to like hem ourselves, our power in and not try to exert it in the ways that we've trying to been ex- exerting it. Right. Because of course, um I'm forgetting his name now. I'll have to look his name up. Uh, the, the, the emperor who like, uh, tried to reconquest Northern Africa Heraclius. starts with an H. Heraclius. Was it Heraclius? That didn't really like get them anywhere. They ended up just like losing that territory and it was, it was a bad expenditure. And, and an even better example, of course, is Justinian trying to reconquest Rome. It was a massive waste of resources. Yeah. And, uh, they kind of stopped doing things like that after a while. And his argument is that we need to stop doing things like that, like the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan was exactly what he was talking sure. about. Okay. Uh, now, and, and then we had the, the whole debacle in Syria that, that, uh, happened after he wrote the book and now this whole Ukraine thing. It's just sapping, uh, our money and our vitality for no benefit to us whatsoever. Yeah. It's, it's only benefiting the regime really. Yeah. So, so I'm, this is kind of like the nightmare scenario. I would prefer the Caesar or the Napoleon route than this, but I'm having the sinking feeling that the, the, the best estimation of our position to be, to, to say is that we're in a position like the Byzantines are, where we have nothing to look forward to, but like slow disintegration of our, of our, of our colonial holdings, uh, the, the pulling back of our ability to exert ourselves beyond our own borders and continual uh, financial crises that if we don't deal with them properly, all they're going to do is continue to sap the middle classes of their vitality, which is exactly what's happening right now, right? The middle class is footing the bill for everything, everything, uh, Obamacare, medic, uh, welfare, the war in Ukraine. I mean, the the middle class is paying all this. Meanwhile, the middle class's means of actually supporting themselves and earning income for themselves is being, taken away from them slowly but surely at the same time. So, um I'm not sure how late in the Byzantine Empire it was, but I remember reading this this is probably up towards like the 13th 14th century mm-hmm. that the Byzantine Empire near the end was really just like a small set of suburbs right outside of Constantinople.
0: Sure. And like yeah, and it yeah. took
1: a 1000 years for this to play out.
0: Well, no I, I, I... Do you see my I don't point? like that either, but I think the, the reason I think that's extremely unlikely is because the Byzantines had plenty of problems, among them that they, their political structures tended to involve a lot of extreme infighting, uh, which is very damaging, as well as, of course, the international adventures, which they really couldn't support. But other than that, the Byzantines were firmly based in reality. Uh, and to the extent that they engaged in international ventures, It was either for reconquest of lost glory and perhaps for economic reasons. We, on the other hand, the regime engage in international adventures increasingly for ideological reasons. That is, we want to spread the rainbow flag everywhere, which is a completely insane reason to waste trillions of dollars and will inevitably end in, in, well, it's clearly ending in defeat uh, all around. We can't even shoot down we're, we're unable apparently to, no, that's not the claim, to shoot down that Chinese spy balloon that's hovering over Montana. It's not clear to me how it's hovering. Like, does it have like some way to keep it its relevant place? I don't get that. Whatever. The fact is that we, when the Chinese send a spy balloon over, our you, you've seen that in the news? Oh yeah. No, of course. And it, the, the first thing it makes me think of is the hacking
1: attacks that China put against us. And the only reason we ever found them is because we had to like take a couple hackers out of prison to like look at our <laughs> computer infrastructure to see if it's vulnerable to attacks, and they're like, not only is it vulnerable, you're being attacked right now by the Chinese, and you
0: didn't even know. Right, and <laughs> so, so the, it's Chinese, like... the Chinese are literally, you know, floating a balloon over our nuclear weapon sites, <laughs> and we're not doing anything about it. So because we're too busy, you know, flying the BLM and rainbow flags on our embassies around the world, it is stupid. So the biz- and, and and so even beyond that. The Byzantine economy wasn't a fake and stupid economy. It was just a, you know, a declining empire with a variety of extreme challenges and ultimately with the rise of the Turks, you know, fatal challenges, the Seljuks and then the, the Ottomans. That's unfortunate for the for the Byzantines. And I don't know what would necessarily have made it any different. I don't think we're in that position at all. And, and third, the technology accelerates things. That is, back then, everything took a long time because – it was just a slower pace of everything. And now with technology, any changes or deleterious things, I mean, it will, it will deleterious to the regime that it will necessarily happen very rapidly. So I do not see us – all this will happen in in our lifetimes. I mean, I, I'm putting 2030 as the outside date, uh, though when we get to like 2028, I'll up that to 2035. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just don't see us ending up like the Byzantines.
1: Well, to, just to be clear, because I kind of indulged my, uh, my example, what I mean by the Byzantines is a slow but sure chipping away at the middle class and a chipping away at our, I call them, you know, imperial holdings, but, uh, for us, our imperial holding is like our ability to insert control over foreign nations. Yeah. Now, um, Okay, so it might not last. We might not last another thousand years, but I could see this shrinking of the middle class and a and a loss of a global hegemony playing out over the next century. But, um, but even if it does play out over another century, of course, it's an acceleration in comparison to the Byzantines. But it's much, it's three, ten times longer than than you're saying the times the time frame that we're on.
0: Right. Well, Um, a century, and we'll see who was right. Yeah.
1: Okay um okay so okay good i think we've set some pretty good parameters for the discussion and then uh for part 2 i want to get down to like some details the counter elite the fentanyl thing uh because i didn't totally make my point about that So for the listeners benefit, I'm going to let you know we ended up bantering quite a lot during the break. So we're going to speed run the final bit of uh, content we have here. So let's, let's just hit all this, uh, one point for point. So first the, the misconception that I think people have that the Caesar has to come from the military. I get why people say that because most of the time in the past, he has come from the military. But it's not, it's definitely not a, a precondition or a prerequisite to make a Caesar. The only re- real thing that a Caesar needs is power and he needs the support of the masses. And a, a Caesar can get that today without the military. Uh, the military was real power back then, but it was also a way to ingratiate yourself or to, uh, excuse me, not ingratiate yourself, aggrandize yourself to the masses. Someone like Caesar was celebrated, uh, in the streets by everyone during a triumph, but nowadays you you probably can't. even, Ninety percent of the people probably don't even know the the highest performing generals of the last twenty five years and what that they even did.
0: Idea. I mean, the few generals they know, they know mostly for negative reasons. Probably you like
1: know, McChrystal and yeah,
0: or did some you know you know lesbian you know general. <laughs> yeah, you know, some, not, <laughs> Air Force Commandant is some you know ludicrous lesbian.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so if you could just discuss that, maybe dispel that myth that wh- why does this? Why do people think the Caesar has to come from the military? Well, and why is it incorrect?
0: Yeah, I think that people naturally gravitate to that assumption simply because historically, most people who, most men who have come to power, have come to power in the backs of pre-existing military command. For all the reasons you outline, I mean, it's not just the the publicity and things like triumphs. Caesar overtly collected money from Gaul and then sent it for distribution to the Rome to the Romans. Yeah, literally, this came from Julius Caesar. You might as well have tagged on, don't you like him more now? <laughs> and this is a very deliberate process uh, of Caesar's. And, and so he conflated his military success with the, the economic rewards that came to military men in the past from being a military leader. Obviously, those don't accrue to military leaders in, in our society. Exactly. Really anywhere, so that that the military person today doesn't have that avenue. Mere military success, say like MacArthur type, can in fact lead you to wide knowledge and a lot of people appreciating you. But fundamentally, I always go back to what uh, Jose Ortega y Gasset said, which is force follows public opinion. So if you have any kind of leader who captures the zeitgeist, and you know, Trump is an example of that, we talked about that earlier, very imperfectly. But if you have a leader who captures the zeitgeist at a time when people are, are, have need of that, they want that, then that is, enables him to collect those peoples and channel the will of those people, military power follows very rapidly. It follows in our sight simply because elements of the military in some situation like that where that person wanted or was engaged in conflict would automatically peel off and join that person. And our military is used to subordinating itself to civilian control. So it's not like colonels would peel off saying, I want to be the Caesar. Colonels would peel off saying, I want to help the Caesar. Right, exactly. It's also true that in America, and this is unique, there are something like a billion guns in private ownership and a very significant amount uh, of people under the men under the age of 45 who have experience of one type or another, ranging from full scale Iraq style fighting to simply reservist style fighting. There's a lot of kind of latent military potential, almost all of which would be at least potentially directed to a right wing Caesar, which could be very easily organized into fighting forces. I mean, it wouldn't have the ability to do combined arms operations with, you know, air, land and sea power necessarily, but on a small scale, and that's probably the only scale that matters, you a, a a guy with no military experience who was aiming and was on the path to become Caesar could instantly have, instantly meaning within a couple of weeks or months, a relatively smoothly operating military force of hundreds of thousands of men completely dwarfing the actual fighting capacity of the, the American military, even if parts of the actual military, fighting military didn't peel off to help it. But by actual fighting military, I mean the fact that the vast majority of our military is basically Shaniquan supply chain or, you know, some equivalent. I mean, for these practices purposes, for example, every woman in the military is a net negative and real Caesar wouldn't have a single woman in his in his military forces and the the women would be left in the real military and that would be exactly as useful as one might think it would be
1: yes one of the only hard predictions i'm willing to make um is that if we ever were to let's say we let's say war escalated to russia and we sent a bunch of troops out there that the the women will basically be kept behind the lines uh, mostly from their own choice, but the men won't let them come out. And the very few who do actually make it uh over the line into enemy territory are, are probably going to get themselves and many of their comrades killed.
0: Uh, well, that, that's be- and that that happened repeatedly in Iraq. I mean, I, I don't, this is before your time, but there's this woman Jessica Lynch, who was captured by the Iraqis. And well, they, he- do you remember that?
1: Yeah, was yeah. Well, go on. Finish the story. Well, sorry.
0: I, I can't remember the details, but as I remember, they they said how heroic she was, and yeah, out really she had done no fighting. She was gang raped, and you know she basically dropped her weapon and fled, and they captured her. Right, I mean, you know, it, which is probably norm for most women in in the combat military. Yeah, we actually disagree, though. I mean, the Israelis, who for years, you know, they have a reason to train women for the military because right. they know, well, you have an existential fight, so that actually makes sense because the fact is that there are scenarios in which it's necessary for women to fight most obvious one is in immediate defense of the family. But you can imagine a country like Israel needing to have women fight, even though it's extremely bad on a whole number of levels, which, I, which I've written about. But for years, the Israelis refused to allow women anywhere near combat. Right, for, exactly. But r- lately, I, at the Israeli Supreme Court a couple of years ago, which is a supremely left ideological body, which accrues. I mean, it makes like the, the Warren court look like pikers in terms of, as I understand it, not that I'm an expert in Israeli politics mandated that women be put into to combat positions. I, I, and so I think that the ideology would likely, in fact, do the opposite. That is, they would send the trannies and women to the front saying, you know, women. everyone knows that women and trannies are the best. You know, diversity is our strength and then just get slaughtered. So that would be a salutary lesson to all involved except for the dead.
1: Yeah. yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I don't think it's going to come to that. Now, I don't think we're going to have a civil war and – the reason why I don't think we're going to have a civil war is that the regime is not as stupid as people like to say they are. And I gave the example that they're not turning Trump into a martyr on purpose, which is, you know, the reasoning they gave for uh, Osama bin Laden. Now we could speculate that they didn't actually kill Osama bin Laden. I think it's a very reasonable speculation. Uh, but let's say that they did and they didn't, they threw his body off Fetsi. Let's say that's true. Um, the reason they did that is because they didn't want to make a martyr. They didn't want to make a spectacle of it. And then, uh, people would go out and, you know, commit retribution, you know, terrorist attacks of retribution. That's why they're not, because they could, they have the power to just arbitrarily arrest Trump and hold him indefinitely for sure. And they're not doing it, not because they don't have the power, but because they know it would be a disaster. They know that that would actually stoke the uprising that they try to claim January 6th was. Another argument I have for, for why I don't think they're stupid is that, uh, if you look at the way the Syrian civil war broke out, for example, well, the reason why it turned into a civil war is because there was civil unrest, there were people in the streets, and the military ordered, the, uh, excuse me, Assad ordered the military to fire on the civilians, and they refused to do so. The, the, the military refused to do so. Now, when we saw these videos of the National Guard being deployed to, um, washington dc it was a national embarrassment it was an absolute joke because these were like overweight sloppy you know completely out of shape normal people who who live their day-to-day lives as complete american you know walmart shopping slobs and then they throw them uh, into dc and it just it makes america look like a laughing (laughs) stock but why did they pick them and not seal team six you know what i mean why why did they deploy those people and not delta force
0: well I, I'm not a military expert, but the the SEAL Team Six and Delta Force probably had other things to do. But uh, just I'm using about, them
1: rhetorically, though. Like what?
0: But, I mean, the reality is, and people have analyzed this. The actual fighting strength of the United States military, in terms of people who who are actually capable of fighting in an infantry kind of Right. You know, is something like eighty or ninety thousand men. Um, and it's just not a lot of people. And a lot of them are so abroad. So I don't think that you. I don't think you have and you. You don't have five hundred or a thousand people easily who are who are kind of actual warriors. And of those, those say say it, make it a hundred thousand men. You know, eighty percent of them are white. uh probably love Trump, and the rest of them are black and Hispanic, and they probably like Trump too, or at least they're, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're, they're in that milieu, a you know, reality based milieu where you with know, right. being an actual fighting combat soldier. If you don't believe in reality, you end up dead. So it, being a soldier necessarily tends to being reality-based. So it could be some combination of they don't have the the the, the people and they don't want to use those people because they're afraid that they would behave, in, again, back to the Syrian example, in some inappropriate fashion that would further undermine the regime.
1: Well, that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. And I think they're aware of this. And that is why – and that goes back to our other discussion too about why the person running the military whose name is – escaping me right now that we talked about before.
0: Guy?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I what is it?
0: Mark Milley or Miley?
1: No, 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 sorry, not Mark Miley. The uh he's like the the Department of State head. Um I'll look it up while you're talking. Department
0: um um Yeah. From Lloyd Austin.
1: Lloyd Austin. Yes, Lloyd Austin. My argument was that he's really there. He looks inefficient, right? And he looks like a like he's a joke, but the real reason he's there is because he's he's uh He's uh, loyally um, carrying out the regime's wishes, which is to purge the military of right wing people because Absolutely. they know that they know that they're there. So I don't really see them falling into this trap or making the mistake of deploying these uh, people loyal to Trump to go shoot Trump protesters.
0: Well, right. I think
1: they know the type of disaster that that would create.
0: At some point, you I think you probably overrate. I mean, you and I disagree fundamentally on the level of competence. But, <laughs> but the, the, it is also a question of lesser of two evils, right? That is, at the end of the day, when you bring out the fat people and the women to, to enforce your will, that only works as long as the will doesn't actually need to be enforced. Because once they're faced with... The reality is that if, if 20 guys with training showed up with that National Guard thing they probably would have cut and run um because you know, if, if, if so eventually you have to bring people who are competent if you have an actual challenge the, the, one of the tragedies of January 6th is there wasn't an actual challenge it was just a bunch of pe- kind of headless people trying to like do the right thing with no intention to do anything negative or violent or, or, or anything like that that's totally different than people who are actually uh, coming ready for shall we say contingencies
1: Yes. Understood. I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you. Um, okay. So let's, we're going to have to finish on the, uh, the, the, the break, the banter banter will kill anybody's (laughs) podcast, man, because if I let my yeah. So, uh, it cut it cut into our second half time, but that's okay. Uh, The banter was productive. Um, I'll probably edit myself out saying that just so you know. (laughs) So let's finish up on the counter elite, because I think we've, we've made it pretty clear. Um, what we mean by a caesar why we think it's viable to discuss the how much of a reality we think it actually is but one of the ingredients you need for a caesar is a counter-elite not necessarily to put caesar in power but to be there to run things when caesar takes power sure um and actually I there was one other point i wanted to make too so why don't you take both of these up one uh i think your argument is that there is no counter-elite and i disagreed with that i Directly counter that in my essay, is the regime weak? I think there is a counter-elite. But first I want you to make the claim that what the counter-elite is, what they do, and whether or not there is one. But then the other thing I want to just kind of tack on here is uh, it. uh I think Trump had all of the ingredients to become a Caesar, and for a number of reasons, it just didn't come to pass. Um it, He didn't quite have every single thing necessary mm-hmm. to actually go all the way.
0: So, yeah, I, I can talk about that, too. Um, yeah, but I'd
1: love to hear you talk about both points.
0: Right. So the uh, first, on the counter-elite, I actually talked about this a bunch. I mean, obviously, in our fragility stuff, we talked about it, but I also did talk about it in the context of uh, Nima Parvini, academic agent's book, The Populist Delusion. And my basic claim is that it is definitely true, as you say, that any new regime, any new change of political structures requires a new elite uh, or... It, a combination of a new elite or some subset of the old elite changing its allegiance and priorities and getting on board with the, the new form of government. More Sometimes you have an existing counter-elite that then flips over into taking over. Taking over. You have an ongoing political battle, for example, for, for some period of time where there is an existing counter-elite within the society. We don't have that in the context of the current regime. We have what you might call a proto-counter-elite, where you have people uh, in, in, in who are discussing, debating, have the qualifications to be elite. For example, you, know, you or I could function as functionaries in Caesar's new administration, but we're certainly not part of any elite now. My claim is that necessarily a new counter-elite arises rather when the regime change happens, rather than being the cause itself Cause itself of the regime change. And I think this is particularly true for in our society in our kind of current moment for a couple of reasons. First of all, technology allows the assembly of a, a counter elite extremely rapidly. Back when people lived in the provinces and you couldn't really communicate rapidly, it would take months or years to assemble some set of people to work for the new Caesar. Now it's instantaneous. You can start working on Zoom today uh, for for the new Caesar. So you can much more easily create a new counter elite and. The people who will be in this counter-elite are increasingly the people who are excluded from positions of power and prestige in our current society. I mean, We all know that being a white man is the curse of death, kiss of death, not the curse of the kiss of death in not just, in basically any large-scale organization, for profit companies, not for profits, any position of power and prestige is basically being a white man who isn't, doesn't self-identify as non-binary or something like that, is basically, yeah, you can rise a little bit, but you're basically being dragged down by a 300-pound weight that is takes the form of a fat trainee uh, who's you know choking you and sitting on your shoulders. And, and so there's an inc- ever-increasing amount of super-competent people, primarily white men, they're not exclusively white men, who are ready, willing, able to be part of a new counter-elite and are angry about the fact that those opportunities for the things that, are, that they would normally have in a well-functioning society, the rewards that accrue to those who have talents and virtue, have been denied them. So I would anticipate if the right person shows up, the counter-elite being formed very rapidly out of primarily that set of people. That would be kind of trivial. And of course, you could pay them through the mass confiscations of wealth from the left that I, I would recommend that Caesar's first act, uh be. i mean you yeah, i i mean for example like if i was Caesar literally the first thing i would do i mean i always say literally the first thing and it's i have really like 20 first things but one <laughs> of the most important things is i would simply take all the assets of the ford foundation and every other major foundation or entity that has uh that is significantly left wing and just seize them all seize them all you know no no recompense no nothing it's just it's just mine now piss off you know, if if you if you don't shut your mouth, it's off to the dungeon with you. Uh, so and <laughs> oh, probably it should be off to the dungeon with a bunch of them, regardless if they shut their mouths. But it, it, that's the how, see. I mean, that's why prescriptions work. You you put people on a list. Hopefully, you don't shoot them. Hope maybe we've moved beyond that. But you take all their stuff and tell them to shut up. That's the way it should be done. And that, so you have plenty of money to pay this counter elite. Is my point because people need. And then of course you also have to reward them with prestige and honors and recognition and, and so on. This is kind of trivial as far as Trump goes um I, d- I actually disagree with that I think Trump I see Trump as vastly more imperfect and I th- th- think that while he has some of the indicia of a Caesar or potential Caesar he was never disciplined enough the one commonality among all Caesar types is extreme discipline and Trump is the very opposite and he also is an extremely bad judge of character and as you point out Caesar has to have people to help him but he has to pick the right people And the one thing I always come back to is right after he won in 2016, Jared and Ivanka spent a week in Croatia on David Geffen's yacht. You know, notable left-wing homosexual, uh, terrible human being, David Geffen. They thought this was a good idea for Trump's chief advisors to to do that rather than go on a listening tour through Appalachia or something. If you surround, and I understand that that's his daughter and son-in-law, but the fact is if you can't surround yourself with the best people, you're just never going to be capable of executing on a plan, and since you're undisciplined, you don't have a plan. And so, I, I actually strongly disagree. Maybe that's a good way to finish. <laughs> well,
1: other- <laughs> I I say that because the people were so unwaveringly behind him, and it's true. I
0: mean, well, they were behind what they his thought supporters.
1: His supporters.
0: They were behind what they thought he was, but he wasn't that thing. They were just so desperate that they were right. really lost that over.
1: All right. Well, look. I don't think he's perfect. Uh, i am, We won't have that debate because he's definitely, definitely. Twenty twenty to now, he's. We have to move on. And
0: hey, look, man, he's uh, old. I mean, you're leaving you, you need someone who's in his. Thirties, forties. What, it, what it looks
1: like is probably going to happen because the Democrats have a storied history of uh, ostracizing people from the the primaries that they don't want to get in. Um, and, and disenfranchising them and letting people like Michael Bloomberg just kind of jump to the head of the line by giving them a bunch of money. So all the GOP has to do is follow suit with the Democrats and not let Trump be in the primaries or not let him debate, bolster, uh, DeSantis, make him the candidate and then have it, have Trump run third party, which I think he even said he was going to do, um, if he's not on the ticket. And then that will basically bury the GOP probably forever.
0: What would so, you mean? That's absolutely necessary to destroy the the Republican Party.
1: Right. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. So let's let's finish this discussion. Let's see how much time we have left here. Uh, We have a a couple minutes, five minutes.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Elon Musk, I am not going to sit here and say he's a savior figure, but he also has to placate you. I'll say. Some of the ingredients. <laughs> Some of the ingredients to be the next Caesar. Now, as far as I know, he may do nothing more than just make Twitter something better and keep doing what he's doing with, uh, Tesla and SpaceX and all that. But he's got the space thing. He's got good people around him. He's got smart people around him. Uh, he, he has enough popular support that he could be a viable force. Uh, You know, I I think Trump should have probably passed the torch. He probably should have wined and dined DeSantis all this time to make him his guy and had mm-hmm. DeSantis run. Because Elon Musk is a foreign citizen, he would have to do something unprecedented to actually be the Caesar. But he sure. could pick a candidate and groom him to become the next, you know, the, his mouthpiece or something mm-hmm. like that.
0: Blake um, <laughs>
1: yeah, Blake Masters is a good choice. He doesn't have quite enough panache in my opinion, but I love him. He's my he favorite. Looks- so why don't you take us out and the show on uh, – we were talking off air about, about Musk, and you seem very optimistic, and I share your optimism, but you're much more uh, uh erudite and concise than I am, and you understand the tech side and the money side better than me. So I will let you have the floor to talk as long as you need to take the show out Uh on Twitter, Musk, his group of Silicon Valley people as the counter-elite potential we're talking about uh, – Um
0: yeah, I'll try not to not to ramble on too long, but no ramble, please. But fundamentally, I am, and have for a long time, been a a very big Musk fan. Not because I see Musk as the a reflection of foundationalism or uh, even of my my beliefs or, or, or values, though there is some overlap there. And I, I have to admit that I'm a little bit sad at some level because you know I'm past fifty now and. I'll never be Elon Musk, and the reason I'll never be Elon Musk is, well, for a variety of reasons, obviously. But I would never make the compromises that he's made. I mean He's basically he doesn't have a he has a totally irregular personal life. He works around the clock, and that's what he wants to do. I would I would not want to that. I prefer it ha- the the way my life is rather than the way his life is. But I think this is true for a lot of men. Some part of me is a little bit sad that I'll never be Elon Musk. Not because he's so rich because I don't really, I mean, I like money and and, and and so but more because I'll never be a great man in that sense. So I think Elon Musk is a great man. And like all great men, he has various deficiencies and so on. But I think, for example, focusing first narrowly on Twitter, uh, people are, most people who don't understand business don't understand the first thing about Musk's takeover of Twitter. And I, my one viral Twitter thread ever with like 6 million views was an analysis based on publicly available data of uh, Musk's takeover of Twitter and how the mere fact of firing set, roughly 70% of the company's employees, uh, leaving aside the fact that it probably greatly improved his ability to get things done and to make improvements, net off. The debt service payments he has to make still makes it a cash flow breakeven company. And if you ignore the debt service, which you do for company valuation in most cases, it's it has the margins of a Google or an Apple just from doing that. And that's extremely powerful. But and it's also very dangerous for the email class and the left in general to. Show how fake and gay everything. So
1: to clarify, can we say? And I'm not interrupting. You, I just want yeah, you to clarify right. what you just the point you just made. You're saying just from downsizing the company, he's probably made it profitable.
0: Oh, he's made it is that what you're saying profitable? He's made it profitable on the level of Apple or Google, like 30 percent net net margin, profit margin. But he also okay. has a bunch of debt service. So like, which more or less takes that from a cash flow. So he's not getting that profit in his pocket. I see. That service. But I see. typically when you value a company, you ignore its its form of financing, debt versus equity. So it's on a kind of, um, it doesn't mean it's, it's as valuable as Apple or Google, but it does mean because it's total aggregate profit is less, but it does mean on a percentage basis, it's just as profitable as those companies. So you could argue that you could do the same thing at Apple or Google and make them vastly more profitable too. But as they Apple and Google currently exist, you could fire probably 90 or 80 percent of those people's employees and make them even more profitable, too. So maybe Twitter doesn't have the inherent profitability of an Apple, but it's easy enough to make it profitable by firing people who are useless. So but more to the point of an additional point. People bitch, and like I'm not, a, I'm not on Twitter all the time. I don't do hot takes. I have some, some following on Twitter, and that's fine. Occasionally, I do amusing things when I've had a drink or two, but <laughs> you know, people bitch and moan like, oh, this is bad. This site sucks. I need to lock my account. The fact is that Dave Rubin was invited to the Twitter uh, headquarters and had an interesting thread on this. I mean, this is the nature of an entrepreneurial business run by a person who's decisive, competent, and has a good team. He's trying different things. Some things work. Some things don't work out. He has to deal with the ludicrous spaghetti code that the the old Twitter people left behind designed to more or less exclusively to suppress right wing voices. So ultimately, Twitter is going to be not just fantastic, but Musk is very clearly, and he said this explicitly, using it as a platform for things like a payment processor to compete with PayPal. And that's going to be a disaster for PayPal. Not just because people don't like PayPal because it's annoying and obviously a tax. It's PayPal. antiquated. I just used it right. today.
1: I'm like, why are you? Why are right. you making me use PayPal?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a POS. I mean, it's just yeah. terrible. Uh, yeah. not, I don't mean point of sale. And so um, <laughs> it, it's so and it'll be cheaper. He's going to destroy PayPal. Uh, and it's going to be great. And he's going to bolt stuff on and everything. A year from now, everyone's going to look back and say. Musk is such a genius. I should never have doubted him. And people moan like, well, he doesn't have 100% free speech. Well, I mean, it's a lot better than it used to be. So, you know, quit bitching. Um, So anyway, Twitter is going to be great. I think Musk is going to be great in the sense that people, they pay attention to things like SpaceX. I think people generally realize that SpaceX basically dominates the entire global space rocket launch industry which also gives him some political insulation because he has he has control he has a way to push back against the regime and I, though I have said for a long time that the regime will either break musk or he'll have to break the regime yeah you in a second but for example this didn't get as much press as it should have when early on when musk took over Apple started making noises about how uh, well we're going to take Twitter off the app store if they don't restore all the censorship and we're going to withdraw we're withdrawing all our ad buys musk went publicly went to tim cook not that tim cook announced it musk just tweeted out a picture here i am on the apple campus meeting with tim cook and magically tim cook said oh never mind none of that's going to happen almost certainly what if musk did is said hey tim you either do this or i'm going to destroy apple i'm going to have a new phone i'm going to do everything and you're basically going to be you go down in history as the guy who presided over apple's destruction So literally that same day, Tim Cook publicly recanted everything that the people at his company had threatened Musk with. And we haven't heard a word of it since. So there's a lot of power under the surface. And SpaceX provides a lot of power as well with the regime and and what have you. So a a guy who's willing to do all these things, a guy who's decisive, smart, inspires loyalty in people. I mean, I have no connection to Musk. I mean, it's not like Musk takes my calls. (laughs) But but, maybe someday soon. Maybe, but I mean, if if he calls, I'll I'll pick up. But, uh, and and I actually, I I would not know, I don't work for politicians. I don't donate to politicians for the most part. I would actually consider uh, doing, working for Musk if he became the the new Caesar. And by the new Caesar, I'm not sure what that would look like. But if the regime fractured, you could easily see kind of to the point, I think that we were talking about earlier and that you're making, you can easily see Musk being that guy. Uh, I, I see, I see, Hesitate a little bit to see him as a guy who is a Caesar in the sense of a military leader implementing military solutions to the problems that require a military solution. But, hey, you know, history is full of a lot stranger things than that. Maybe, you know, you know that clown Zelensky used to be a comedian and now he shows up in battle gear all the time. So maybe Musk will start showing up in battle gear just less clownishly. So I have, I, have a, I think Musk is likely to be an extremely important element of the American future, bizarrely for a guy <laughs> Not born in America, so uh, he's the only guy like that, and there is no there, you know, except no substitutes. And Maybe somebody else will will show up. That's history says, cometh the hour, cometh the man. But right now, a betting man would say that Musk is uh, is going to have a very large imprint on the next decade.
1: So this it, it's it's very pleasing and rewarding to me to debate the minutia with you. But I am 1,000% on board with everything you just said, like a uh, 1,000%. Uh, the thing about SpaceX is like one of one of uh, the things Yarvin likes to point out. I think you discount Yarvin a little bit too much. I, I He's one of the main guys I follow. But uh, either way, we don't have to debate Yarvin. But- well,
0: Yarvin won't debate me. So, you know, it's, uh, he, several people have offered, and I, I started a, a written debate with him. Oh, I didn't know that. He dropped out of because he feared my power.
1: Yeah, he probably did. You're probably too much on too of- <laughs> Too close to his level, uh. But that's no no insult to Yarvin. Um. But one of the things he points out, though, is that part of the way these guys, and this is how oligarchy works, right? Part of the way these guys get power is that the state has problems that it can't solve, so it pays them, it contracts them to solve the problems. The state couldn't defeat Gaul; they couldn't figure out the problem of of Gaul. So Caesar went up there and did it himself. Uh. They couldn't figure out the problem of the Mediterranean pirates, and um.
0: Another example is the the Merovingians hired they had the mayors of the palace who yeah, was, yeah, the Carolingians who one day decided they didn't need the Merovingians anymore, you know, <laughs> so they just, the mayors of the palace became the new kings. Like the, yeah,
1: is. I didn't I didn't actually know how the Merovingians uh, evolved into the Carolingians, but yeah, like, uh,
0: the mayors of the palace were the people who ran things, and that that was the Carolingians. Uh, so they and, just kept they kept control. But, but, yeah, one day they're like, well what, what do we need you people around for anymore? We're we're actually running things and so, Yeah, but didn't the
1: uh didn't the uh military uh cast in the Ottoman Empire do the same thing then they take over at some point um, the
0: uh, it wasn't the Ottoman it was the Mamluks who were the, yeah, e- the, yes. the Egyptian slave military caste. they the same thing. And They're like, what, what do we need this opposite, you know, yeah. Caliph for? Calif- calif- he just like sits on his ass and grants yeah, exactly. our hard work. <laughs> it's time for us to be in charge. And the Mamluks actually ruled until Napoleon, uh, technically until Napoleon, uh, went to Egypt.
1: Yeah. So the point I'm trying to make is that SpaceX is the equivalent example of this for musk the state dropped the ball with space and musk has picked it up
0: yeah absolutely and and, then they can't pick up the ball again i mean no no they they, they like talk about it and but it's never gonna happen
1: well i think i've always been behind musk because if you look at his track record and if you clear away all the gobbledygook from the peanut gallery uh everything he's done has been a resounding success he's everything he's done has been a success um for him
0: tremendous odds you know it, yeah it, like i mean he didn't like founding facebook you know it, it just it, it isn't anything i mean it, it, eventually there would have been something like that and there were many other competitors and so on right. so, like, founding spacex and like right. field rocket after field rocket from an island in the middle i mean it's just unbelievable uh, again you know I, i'm sad that i'll never beat elon musk in, in a way but what's gonna do
1: well the last thing i'll say and uh, i'm gonna give you the last word Thank you so much for your time. It's really an honor. I mean, it's one of the biggest honors of my whole career as a podcaster, actually, um, to have you give me this much time. Uh, and, and I hope that you go on to do even bigger and better things than you're already doing. I hope so too. <laughs> so the last word I'll say is that, uh, a lot of the times the criticism people give of Musk. It makes it obvious that they don't pay attention to a word he says. Yes. And before he even officially took over Twitter, he said, I'm probably going to make the 20% on the left and the 20, or excuse me, the 10% on the left and the 10% on the right angry, but I, I'm, I don't want them anyway. I'm gunning for the 80% in the middle. Mm-hmm. So then when the hard right people are like, well, I don't like Musk because he doesn't uh, check this box, that box, and the third box, it's like, well, he never said that he was going to do that in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so it's no, like.
0: Most people are all better off because they're allowed on Twitter now. I mean, Twitter used to be, you know, it, you know, for the left and the right was radically, the 10% of the left were praised and uplifted, and the 10% on the right were banned. At least now they can talk. I mean, Musk doesn't agree with them, but <laughs> tough noogies. I mean, so yeah.
1: what? Yeah. So any, any last words? I'm going to sign off.
0: No, I'll just repeat my usual mantra, which is that I am very optimistic. The future is great. Uh, there'll be, you know, a lot of pain involved to which I'm kind of glossing over, but the future is bright and by 2030, everything's going to be better.
1: Well, I said I'd give you the last word, but I have to say you have now, I am now optimistic too. You've just totally turned me around. I'm
0: awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm so just it's... White pills, a white pill for you, a white pill for you. <laughs>
1: All right. Thank you so much. Astro flight simulation signing off.